this is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, where I dissect serial killers and analyze what I find. This is another part in the series I am doing about stranglers. I did one comparative ep episode where I go through four different serial killers, and I told you a little bit about them and then I compared them. I will have a part two to that one coming up soon. This one is still part of the series because it is a super deep dive into John Reginald Christie. This episode is a little bit different, so I am talking about one specific serial killer through the whole thing, but you know one of my goals is to compare. There will be comparing in the episode. I will be covering, first of all, the book Death in the Air by Kate Winkler Dawson, and we'll go through his life. I will compare it to the book John Christie of Rillington Place, a biography of a serial killer by Jonathan Oates. So I will be discussing those two books and comparing, and I will discuss the movie 10 Rillington Place, as well as the short series Rillington Place, and I will compare those. And then there will be other comparisons along the way. We don't know. It might get crazy with the comparisons. This is going to be a doozy. So, so first I'm going to talk about the book Death in the Air. What prompted me to do this as a special episode is I was originally just going to cover this book Death in the Air because what it does is it tells you about the subtitle. We'll, we'll give that to you. The subtitle is The True Story of a Serial Killer, The Great London Smog, and The Strangling of a City. So it's intriguing because at the same time Jonathan Reginald Christie was strangling women and killing them, The Great London Smog was also strangling people and killing them. It's like this double layer of people not being able to breathe and dying that is really intriguing and I love the history aspect of it. So initially I was just going to talk about this but then I decided well I've seen 10 Rillington Place and I wanted to watch Wellington, Rillington Place and you know how it goes with me is the deeper I go the more I want to cover so we're just going to cover it all and it's going to be exciting. First we're going to jump into Death in the Air. One of the reasons why it's important to know the history that was happening is it does sometimes help explain why things are happening the way they're happening or maybe the circumstances could have contributed and it just gives it some more context and it's especially intriguing when you have again like the strangling of people along with the strangling caused by pollution in the air. It adds different layers and it can help and help enlighten what was happening with this serial killer. At this point in history. This is in England, in London specifically. For England, around 1936, King Edward VIII had abdicated the throne to marry an American divorcee. So people were kind of pissed about that. That was a difficult time. And then around 1952, King George VI died and that caused mourning. But there was hope because the tw his 25-year-old daughter Elizabeth II was going to be crowned. So that was exciting. However, that was about the most exciting thing to look forward to because at this point in time, even though when you get to after the war, they were still struggling. Lots of people had died. There was a war debt. They were still rationing some things. They were fighting in Korea alongside Americans. And there was a crime epidemic. So you can kind of see how this is setting the scene for life is just tough all around in this period of time. And they were having a difficult time in general. During this time, coal was the big fuel for everything. 
And I will read directly from Death in the Air to give you a good idea of what that was like. For years, coal had fueled the country's growth, and by 1952, there was at least one coal fireplace per home, meaning that in London, millions of domestic grates were stuffed into an area of just 600 square miles, just under twice the size of New York City. The fuel was cheap, effective, and crucial. It was the only major source of domestic heating in the city at that time. But the smoke could be suffocating, and the sulfur dioxide released into the air was deadly. It triggered acid rain strong enough to bend iron, erode statues, poison land, and contaminate waterways. The pollution could destroy lungs and cause cancer. But still, the coal burned. In 1952, almost 40 coal-fired power stations kept London electrified, and more than 20,000 steam locomotives kept the city moving. The politics of big coal were no less murky than the air it produced. Coal, it turned out, was one of the few thriving international industries remaining in post-war Britain. More than 250 million tons were mined domestically every year. It was a key export for the country at a time when national budgets were tight. More than 700,000 workers were employed in British coal mines. Politicians weren't ignorant of the environmental concerns of burning huge quantities of coal every year, but their hands seemed tied. The Conservative Party, also known as the Tories, was led by Prime Minister Winston Churchill, the country's ailing but still potent leader. The Conservatives knew that any attempt to constrain the coal industry could be devastating to a vulnerable British economy. Their main opposition, the Labour Party, was anxious to use the country's massive debt as a weapon in the upcoming election. So the government was keeping up a brisk pace in international coal sales, but it was selling its best domestic coals to other countries and reserving the cheaper coals for its own people. This cheaper coal, a brown dust with bits of coal, was a soft material, a poor replacement for the more expensive black coal still being rationed. It went by the nickname Nutty Slack. And though it was far inferior to black coal, it was all the most... Londoners could afford in these desperate post-war times. It took enormous amounts of nutty slack to heat the average home. The cheaper brown coal was inefficient and much dirtier to burn, which created more smoke and more pollution. But most politicians in Parliament were certain that exporting black coal and selling the nutty slack domestically was a crucial cost-saving decision. Britain was desperate. Smokeless fuel wasn't economically realistic or widely available. In 1952, London entered winter with its largest stock of coal of all grades in any post-war year, 19.5 million tons. As Londoners warmed themselves by their fires that December, they couldn't possibly have known there was a deadly killer gathering strength across London around their homes, a lethal pollutant plotting to devastate an already crippled city. So I think that gives a really good picture of setting everything up to what is going to come. And there's also this idea of kind of the perfect storm where you've got burning the nutty slack that caused pollutants in the air. Then there's a thing called the Gulf Stream. And basically what it would do, it would spew warm, moist air towards London. Then there was something called an anticyclone, which is a ridge of high pressure circulated wind whirling in clockwise motion around an eye of high atmospheric pressure. So it would make the days sunny and the nights dry, and then foggy and frigid at night, but then the breeze would drive it away. What caused the problem was in the, when there wasn't a breeze to drive it away. So what would happen is you'd have this high-pressure wind mixing with the smog and the pollutants, and it would cause lots of problems, as we'll see. There was a nickname for this, the thick fog that would come in. They called it a pea super. Pea super. Like the stuff that Reagan spewed out in Exorcist.
other than pollutants, the fog just disturbed visibility. So there was a, a train crash that killed 100 people and injured 300 at one point. As for the deadly gases, the machines used by the Air Ministry to record air pollution tracked only sulfur dioxide and, dioxide and smoke. There were other deadly gases, carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide, belched out by exhaust from thousands of vehicles that were going unmeasured. And diesel oil engines from the city's 8,000 double-decker buses spewed out vanadium compounds that caused bronchial irritations. As the chemicals in the air increased, so did the number of deaths. Another thing I liked about this book is they gave actual examples of people who lived through it. So they interviewed people and that gave their firsthand accounts of some of the things that they went through with this smog and the pollutants. For example, women often wore white petticoats under their cotton dresses, and smoke would actually turn the hems black, and it took them hours to clean. Their hair would get grimy and coated with soot. It would seep into their skin, and I quote, like a thin layer of lotion that refused to be scrubbed away with soap flakes. The smell was acrid, filthy, and burning. Of course, the heavier the fog, the more it burned. It would scorch your eyes and nose and squeeze your throat shut. So that's another really good picture of, the, of what they would go through while they had to walk through this fog and deal with it. Another important thing to note in regards to Christy is what Notting Hill was like in this time period where he, when he lived there. Notting Hill was once a nice area, but then the economy changed and it lost its value. So they divided up into different dwellings and then bombs were damaging the area. So it became shabby overcrowded housing there were like gamblers and uh, sex workers and squatters and just not a lot of uh, good things happening in that area on top of that there was a lot of racial tension and hostility because of the influx of immigrants from the caribbean four years earlier in 1948 almost 500 african caribbean passengers from jamaica came to london britain encouraged the immigration to help rebuild they had a shortage of cheap labor and many of them were ex-servicemen that had served in the Royal Air Force in the war. Well, they had just planned on the 500, but it exploded to several thousand. So that exacerbated the severe housing shortage that was already being experienced. Unfortunately, this led to many white people having bad views of the immigrants as viewing them as haughty, lazy, and indecent. So it was not unusual to see signs that would say, no colored allowed no West Indians, or keep Britain white. This just shows another layer of not only there was already issues with pretty much everything, you know, with housing and with jobs and the war. And, and then on top of it, you're going to have this fog come in. So this fog comes in and it's getting worse and worse. Now, some politicians had already warned about the effect on coal on miners so basically, they're like, from the very beginning of us getting the coal, we are endangering lives. And it's, as we burn it, it's going to get even worse. One case of a bad fog reported, police had responded to 500 calls from stranded or crashed motorists over the weekend. The ambulance, answer, the ambulance service answered 600 emergency calls in two days. It grounded planes. It reduced patronage businesses. Thousands of people couldn't go to work. When the fog cleared, they found at least eight people in the river. So whether they had accidentally fallen in because they didn't know they were that close to it or what have you. So you can see it was a very real problem that it was adding onto their already strained existence. At this point, they hadn't really started to measure the lives yet of lives that had been lost, which we will see. Because the cops would have to go from house to house 
Because people were dying in their homes. Many were dying in their beds. Some were sitting up in their chairs. And the coroner's offices were full. Basically, the cops would just show up and make note that this person had died and then leave the body there. Because where would it go? Now, it is important to note that it wasn't too shocking to keep dead loved ones at home because it had been a Victorian tradition to store a loved one's body in a parlor for the viewing in the wake. And this is a direct quote from the book. It was often referred to as the death room, and it had served as a place for funerary rituals until about 50 years earlier at the turn of the century. After the person died, the body was watched for several nights to make sure he was truly dead. That was the origin of the term wake, the social gathering before a funeral. When funeral parlors gained popularity in the early 1900s, home parlors were renamed living rooms. After the cops started going around and tons of people were dying, then finally, enough time had passed that they could start seeing patterns emerge. And doctors began to see fog-related causes of death. But then there was a question of how do we determine for sure which one was a fog death, which one, you know, what, what they died, would have died regardless of the smog or whatever. So it was still difficult to determine, but they were starting to see that, that this was affecting people's lives. Unfortunately, they didn't have the technology to fully understand the risks of poor air quality. So that was another handicap, is, is that they couldn't just measure things and just ha be able to find the answers quickly. There were two deadly smog events other than London. One was in Belgium in 1930. For four days, an anticyclone trapped fog with pollutants and created a potion as deadly as warfare gas, killed 60 people and sickened thousands. Then in 1948... In Pennsylvania, fog mixed with hydrogen fluoride from a zinc plant and sulfur dioxide from a steel corporation and coal smoke, and it lasted five days. It killed 20 people and sickened thousands. So this was credited for triggering the clean air movement in the United States and, and introduced us to the term smog. We grew concerned as Americans, and we reached out to Britain to try to start figuring out how can we handle this as an as um, an international thing. Like, what can we work together and try to figure out how each of us can try to reduce this? And now, granted, 60 people and 20 people in the scheme of things isn't a lot of people to die. But if you're, thousands of people are getting sick and you don't know if this might happen again and maybe get worse and worse and worse, you want to nip it at the butt before it starts getting really out of hand. Unfortunately, it will get really out of hand in Britain. At this point, the Ministry of Health starts to collect data. There was electricity and gas at this point, but it was still really expensive. And there, there wasn't enough smokeless fuel available. The U.S.'s pollution survey determined it was too hard to connect deaths with pollution, so it was feared that Britain would wind up the same way. Now, December comes, and there's this terrible fog. There were 3,000 more deaths on top of the deaths that had already happened. And it turns out there might have been more like 6,000 deaths total at this time. This was more deadly than the 1866 cholera epidemic that had killed 5,596 people. A politician lobbied to shorten the time period of the fog death research by two weeks, which affected the numbers. So this, is, uh, this can be seen a couple of ways. It could be seen as super shitty to basically hide numbers because I don't I don't know what the point of that would be other than to cover deaths although unless they felt they had a really good reason to shorten the time frame but what it ended up to is they shorted by two weeks and so less deaths were actually formally reported on top of everything that was happening there was a huge storm there was flooding they had to evacuate 30,000 people it damaged power stations railways and gas works it would cost this already crippled nation 50 million pounds of course this caused more political fighting because they felt the government failed to set up a proper storm warning system 
Then Queen Mary died and people loved her. So the nation is just devastated. It's had all of these blows. And on top of that, winter was coming. And they actually say it in the book. I was pretty excited. They said, winter's coming. And they actually say it a couple of times. So with winter coming, you know, in the summer, it's, it's easier not to be as worried about what is going to happen when things are cold. But there are people who realize, you know, we need to start figuring out now how to solve our problems for the future. Because if we wait until we start burning the coal again because it's cold out, then we might be fucked. So let's try to figure something out now. And it is... It started to get on everybody's radar a lot more. So the government realized they had to do something. They proposed providing respirators to people with predisposed respiratory or heart conditions. If this starts sounding familiar, I will be going into a a comparison of this time period to the COVID coronavirus time period here in a second. So these heavy duty masks had a sealed system to circulate clean air, but there was debate over how much that would help in light of the type of pollution. Who do you decide who needs it most? How long should you wear it? How long? How do you distribute it? There's all these details that they have to work out, but they had to do something. They even tried smokeless zones where it was you weren't allowed to burn coal, but it didn't always work. And the government didn't seem to know when to pick businesses over potentially saving lives. Because on the one hand, you need people to be making money. But on the other hand, if they're burning coal, they're possibly killing people. So it's a it's a difficult. I mean, it doesn't seem like it should be. <laughs> But it's, I mean, you can understand the dilemma. It's not like there's just a straight, easy answer. They stopped installation of furnaces and buildings unless they wouldn't emit smoke. There was a committee formed that would start to try to get more data and figure out how to possibly combat the issue. People started to make their own masks. The media picked up on it, and then supplies started to run out. The ministry tried to reiterate that it was a partial solution, and experts couldn't agree on the best solution. But they decided to offer simple masks to sell. U.S. tobacco companies offered free cloth masks with their logos on it, but the British government declined. And that just is a just beautifully ironic, lovely, hilarious thought is tobacco companies offering masks to help people prevent pollution of their lungs. It's, uh, it's fun. Surprisingly, they, they declined. They were still selling the nutty slack. The Minister of Fuel and Power said the consumption of coal is small and when windy, it's not a great harm to burn it and it produces no more smoke. And I quote, of course, during foggy conditions, it's better to avoid banging up with it. (laughs) If it's cold as fuck and you can't afford regular fuel and you're being rationed, what the fuck are you going to do? Are you going to let your family freeze because you're you can't because the nutty slack is going to pollute things it's really again it's just a terribly difficult situation to be in the day that they began issuing these masks which were called martindale masks it was bitter cold with a deadly fog they tested the masks but they didn't know exactly what caused smog so it's hard to do tests when you don't know exactly what you're dealing with another committee was formed (laughs) on top of the one that was already formed but this committee would coordinate activities of various departments about air pollution. They would come up with long-term solutions like better stoves and smokeless fuel. The other committee still had not divulged their findings. The Beaver Report did finally come out, and there is a note that there was a graph that was in the initial report but was removed from the final version. They didn't discover it until 50 years later, and that very important graph pointed out that there were possibly 12,000 deaths and not 4,000 deaths. However, that was not in the final report, so the final report showed 4,000 deaths. 
There are two parts to this report. One is the analysis of the source and effect of air pollution. And the second was recommendations for immediate action. And some were already being done, like a meteorological warning system and smog mask for the elderly. Some of the other things suggested in the report were to stay inside during smog events, ban burning trash and bonfires, and press the government to encourage smokeless fuel in heavy smog times. They blamed local governments and the country's former and present administrations and the coal consumer. They said it was most, most of it was the problem was from domestic fires. But again, it acknowledges that if this is all you have, then what are you supposed to do? They charged that there needs to be more smokeless fuel research. They named components of main components of air pollution. This document was revolutionary because it put everything in one document that politicians and lay people could understand. This brought about the Clean Air Act of 1956, the world's first air pollution act enacted by a government that restrained pollution nationwide. It moved towards electricity and gas, and it became a blueprint for the rest of the world. There were half a number of fogs the year after they implemented it. It still happened sometimes, but it was way less and they were better prepared. That gives you a good idea of what was going on at this time. And it's interesting to see, again, something that you wouldn't think we would really have much comparisons to now. I'm sure that there were certain phrases that caught your attention that there are similarities. And it's really important that we learn about history because it does repeat itself. And even if it doesn't repeat itself exactly, there are things that are close enough that maybe we can say, okay, well, this is going down this path what did they do before to try to combat this? Or what can we, how can we learn from this that they've already been through? And even it's just interesting to see how issues that seem different can have the same kind of effects on people. For example, so we saw from the fog that it affected businesses and people being able to go to work because they couldn't see it go to work. And I mean, literally, it was when they say pea super, I guess I probably didn't make it as clear. You literally would not be able to see in front of you. So there was impossible to move around or you could move around, but you might run into something or fall in the river or <laughs> it was really hard to see. And of course, that affected crime, because if cops can't see what's going on, people would just figure out how to get to a place, break in and steal shit and leave. And the cops can't even see to chase them or anything. So and, and then on top of that, people would walk out outside and it would awesomely automatically cause breathing problems. And so people, businesses closed, people couldn't go to work. So again, we see with COVID is because we were afraid of passing it on to other people that businesses closed and people couldn't go to work. Or if you got COVID, then you couldn't go to work and you were stuck inside, which is similar to the, what they were experiencing in this great smog. There were so many deaths, there were too many for funeral homes. And at the beginning of COVID, we saw the numbers that were coming out about how many people were dying. We saw people that didn't have enough room in their funeral homes. So I believe one, I think, wasn't it he got a truck? He had, he had just had dead people in a truck because he's like, I don't know what the fuck else to do. I don't have enough space for them. So you see where there's another epidemic where there's so many people dying, it just gets out of control. There was tension over how to figure out what were fog-related deaths to the point where they went back and looked at the numbers and saw that originally some that were, they, they wanted to blame the flu. But when you actually went back and cataloged all of the flu deaths, it was a way smaller number than was thought or was portrayed at that point in time. Of course, during COVID, there was a lot of 
debate over were they really killed by COVID? And they're flagging everything COVID deaths. How do we know it was really a COVID death? And I'm not going to get into the politics of all of that. This is basically just just the simple statement that there was tension over what is determined as COVID deaths. So there's that similar tension that they had over the fog deaths and were they really killed by fog? Would they have died anyway? So that's another divisive thing. Then, of course, the immediately obvious one was when they came out with masks. And it really struck me when I was reading this that I happened to be reading this right at the tail end of what is hopefully the tail end of this pandemic. Just seeing all these little check marks come up. And and I'm glad that I chose to read it now because it is interesting, even though it's not necessarily apples to apples, you can still see some similarities. And I'm glad that I did it now and I can see and I can share with you how interesting it is about these comparisons. So the masks, they are like, we have to do something, so let's use masks. And again, there was debate with how much will it help. They didn't have the tools to figure out exactly how to test that, to be 100% sure. And it's similar to where this hit us so fast, it was hard to know. We didn't have enough data to come through and say, this is definitely going to help for a while. And then, of course, and there's debates over whether it did help or not, even though people were saying it were and it was. And But the bottom line is, people were scrambling for masks. Supplies started to run low. And that's similar to now, is we were scrambling to get masks. They had to shut other things down to focus on the mask distribution. So you can see the commonality between the two situations with the masks. The other thing that I found was really interesting is that in that time period, there was racial tension caused by the, the Jamaicans that came over to Britain. And that caused a lot of hostility and racial tension. Similarly, right before COVID really kicked in, we were having a lot of racial issues here and it was it's it just shows how anytime you have an intense situation and you add things it just it's again it's those layers and how it makes things even more explosive and even more difficult to deal with when you just having things have things that keep piling and piling to have their wartime London then having this racial tension and then the smog on top of that and just everything piling up it's a lot and it's and it's amazing there it didn't get crazier frankly <laughs> i mean look how tense it was for us and we aren't in the middle of a big world war or anything and how tense it got with with black lives matter and everything it just it blows my mind that you still have that racial element there and it's frustrating and i i don't know so you've got all of this shit going on and we can see how we have all of this shit going on now. And it's not exactly, not apples to apples, but it is striking how there are similar things in both situations. Now, I'm going to wrap up that section. So that is the great smog that was happening at the same time that Reginald Christie was active. And now we're in between talking about all the smog stuff. She would intersperse information about what John Reginald Christie was up to. Now, she didn't do it in chronological order from his life. She would kind of jump around a little bit. And she also recommended the other book that was my main source, the John Christie of Rillington Place by Jonathan Oakes. So I read that book. This section, I'm going to actually go through Christie's life. And I'm using both sources as my main sources. And they did, like, you can tell they did a shit ton of research. So those are my main resources. 
Here we go. In John Christie of Rillington Place, it is said that not much is known about Christie's childhood except what Christie said. And I quote, it is impossible to take any statement of Christie's as true unless it is corroborated by someone else. So what we do know is mostly from what he said, but they did do some research and dig in a little bit more and find things from other people as sources. So what is what I'm about to say are things that are genuine that have been researched and are most likely to be true. He had five sisters and a brother. His mom was loving and his dad was strict. Now, he talks about his dad's strictness, but it is possible that his father's strictness may have just been the product of the time. At that time, they just had physical punishment, and that may be what it was and not anything more. It's always possible that his dad maybe was just a big dick that was abusive, but it's also as possible that his dad was just just kind of a hard ass. He was a normal schoolboy. He became a Boy Scout and later an assistant scoutmaster. He sang in church and was involved in sports. He was into mechanical stuff and photography. And photography and mechanical stuff was something that he would continue his love for his whole life, mostly. He was entranced by dead bodies. He saw his grandfather's corpse at eight years old. And I quote from Christy, You would expect that for a little boy, this would be a terrible experience. For me, it was not. I was not frightened, worried, or perturbed in the slightest. I looked at the corpse with a strange, pleasant thrill. So that's something to keep in mind for the future. <laughs> Another reason I really like this John Christie of Wellington Place blah, 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 is that Jonathan Oates does compare him to other English serial killers. So that's kind of cool because, as we know, I love to compare. So he points out that Dennis Nilsson had a similar experience in childhood where he saw a corpse. So there's a tidbit there. Christie apparently had an IQ of 128, and he was athletic, but he was fairly outgoing, but he didn't really have many friends. So he, even though he got involved with things, he kind of kept to himself. Another important thing to note was that at the age of 17, he kissed and cuddled a girl, but found out later she told her friends that he was slow and compared him to another guy that she had messed around with. So people started calling him Reggie Nodick and can't do it Christy. I just don't do that. Like, God damn it. It's so frustrating. I know that kids are going to do what kids are going to do. And even adults to some extent. But just Jesus Christ. It's not always meant. It might not always turn someone into a serial killer. But it's not going to help. Just fucking don't pick on people. After that, surprisingly enough, he was always afraid of sex. So he needed complete control during sex or he had trouble doing it. And I quote, I was never the sexy type. <laughs> I, just, I just like that I was never sexy type. He enlisted in the First World War in 1914. Someone that he was in the war with com commented on Christie's excellent memory, which is an important note to remember. He was injured by mustard gas. He said he couldn't speak for three and a half years, had blindness and hysteria, but there's no evidence that he was actually blinded. And the loss of speech was basically a temporary loss of speech to a whisper. So we'll see that he will exaggerate greatly. He claimed that he had memory loss and dizziness ever since the war. He worked different jobs, including a cinema projectionist and a clerk. It's not documented exactly what happened, but his, one of his, his brothers said that he didn't see him after 1919. So he had this big family, but there's not really a record of him talking to any of them, except there, he did send his mom a picture of him when he became a cop, which we'll talk about here in a minute. He married in 1920. She was 22. He was 21. Apparently, she was quite attractive. Ethel did have a brother named Henry and a sister named Lily. 
Christie started to have some law trouble. He stole some postal orders. He was working for the post office. He stole checks and money orders. The weird thing is, he was working. He got government assistance for some of his disabilities. And Ethel worked. So we're not sure why he did it. Uh, who knows? Maybe he was just excited. He wanted some money. But he does start to have some law trouble. So we'll see that this kind of begins a pattern for whatever reason. He stayed at a guest house and left without paying. But then his mom paid for it. So he, they didn't press charges. In 1923, he left his wife claiming that she had an affair, but he wasn't going to blame her because she had a drinking problem. <laughs> Apparently, there's not really any evidence that she was having an affair. He wound up joining the Royal Air Force, and he started to have law trouble. He stole, possibly because at this point he had a lack of money, so at this point he might have stolen for that reason. He stole jewelry from his parents, even though they obviously were willing to bail him out sometimes, and they did not press charges. He did not write to Ethel for like nine years. So at one point, after some years, she's like, I, I guess he's dead. I don't know. She's, I mean, she had no idea what was going on because he had joined the Royal Air Force after, right after he left her. So she moves in with her brother and it's said that she reported him missing and trying to get government assistance or, you know, trying to get help finding him. In 1928 or 1929, Christy lived with a woman. He was basically living off of her. So she finally was like, hey, maybe, maybe get a job. So he hit her in the head with a cricket bat while she was sitting at a table. Now he says it was an accident. So he was practicing his swing and he didn't realize he had hit her. So I'm not sure how when you're aiming in a room where someone's sitting at a table, how you wouldn't realize that you might be close enough to hit them. The judge didn't buy it, and he had a jail sentence. Ethel apparently did start to see someone at one point, but then they split up in 1932. Then at this point, Ethel, it's been nine or ten years. Ethel finally figures out where he is. He's in prison, and she goes and sees him, and she's like, look, are we doing this thing or not? Either I need to walk away or we need to just do this. So they reconciled, and he had no other criminal acts for like a decade. This is possibly because... You know, he was able to put his life on track for a while. An interesting note is that he said that he was a teetotaler and he was not into alcohol at all. But then witnesses would say they saw him in, him in pubs drinking beer. Here's another <laughs> one of the many things that you can see what exactly is the truth about Christie and his life. At this point, we have Rillington Place in the picture. I've already mentioned it was not a great neighborhood. Now, Rillington Place was divided into three floors and each had one household. The Christies lived on the ground floor, which consisted of a bedroom, a living room, and a kitchen. The front door, the front door and the hallway was right, right outside their apartment. So they could hear anytime someone entered and left and, and the walls were paper thin. So everybody knew everything going on. Or did they, as we shall see. They didn't have any kids. They did have two pets. In 1939, they got a brown Irish terrier. It said that the terrier was blind in one eye, but I'm not sure if it was just always like that or it got that way as it got older. At any rate, he had a dog and later he had a black cat. He said that he was an animal lover and it was pointed out that Nilsson and Hindley, Dennis Nilsson and Mira Hindley, who were also serial killers in England, were animal lovers with dogs. World War II rolled around and he enrolled as a wartime reserve constable. He never said why he joined, but I don't think it's necessarily, if he joined the service, the, you know, RAF, then why wouldn't he be, want to be a cop? And he's lucky that they didn't check his record because he had a record. <laughs> but they really needed people. So who knows? They might have even accepted him anyway. He actually served as being in the wartime police for four years. In this time period, his neighbors said that he tried to use his authority to bully them. Now, this is also reminiscent of Dennis Rader. 
an American serial killer who was also known for trying to use his small bits of power to push people around. He was known for picking up sex workers and apparently he had an affair at this point in time. And um, I don't know whether or not his wife knew of any of that. Now is an important moment in the life of John Reginald Christie. Ruth first. In 1943, she hooked up with John and sometimes they had sex. She didn't care, apparently, that he had a wife and he would lend her money for rent. One time when they were having sex, he strangles her with a rope while they're having sex and he killed her. He was alarmed at the bodily fluids that came out of her when she died, which prompted him to later use diapers on his victims. So he would fashion, he fashioned one out of cloths. He put her under the floorboards because he found out his wife and her brother were coming home. He put her on the floorboards. The brother sleeps in that room on that floor. When they leave again, he takes the body to the wash house for a very short period of time, and then he buried her in the back garden. He said later, It was thrilling because I had embarked on the career I had chosen for myself, the career of murder. The next year, he meets Muriel Edie, saw her at work. He invites her to come to tea with his wife. She brought a male friend, and then the four of them would hang out sometimes. Muriel had a cough, and Christy could talk about medicine, and he told her, I think I can cure you of your cough. Now remember, this is another important time to, to remember the smog. So at this point, there was smog. So chances are her cough was being exacerbated by the smog. He took a sick leave. Ethel wasn't home, and it was the first time he used gas on one of his victims. He had this set up where he had a glass jar and two rubber pipes coming out of it. One led to perfumed water and another to the gas main. So the reason for the perfumed water is so when he turns on the gas main... They won't taste the carbon monoxide from it. They'll just taste the perfumed water. So he would have her, like, suck on that tube. And she lost consciousness. He took her to the bedroom. He had sex with her while she was passed out, equaling rape. He strangled her with a stocking and then put her in the wash house for a little bit and then buried her in the yard as soon as he could. At this point, he has two women buried in his back garden. His landlord decided he wanted to dig up the garden because he wanted to use it to store building supplies. Christie hired an attorney and came up with something, and they actually managed to squash it, so he did not dig up the garden. There was almost a moment when he could have gotten caught. In an interesting side note, he liked the movie Wanted for Murder, which was about a serial strangler. It was fictitious. It was a movie about a serial strangler in 1947. Now remember, at this point, no one knows that he had strangled anyone. Now comes a twist. Enter the Evans family. Tim, age 25, his wife Beryl, B-E-R-Y-L, age 18, and their very young baby, Geraldine. Like, Geraldine had, like, basically just been born, so it's a little baby baby. Tim, he has an IQ, had an IQ of 65 or 75. He was measured at the mental age of 11 to 14. But this is, this is one of those things where when they put it that way, it sounds like he's not intelligent. But... He was capable of employment, and he was social, so it's generally thought that he was sick when he was younger, so he missed a lot of school. So basically, he has an average intelligence, despite the fact that he never got official formal schooling. There is some debate over how much he could actually read or write, because he was also known to be a liar. He was also a petty criminal and had a patchy work record, work record. so he was kind of all over the place. Their marriage was initially happy, but then debt started to cause problems. They were behind in furniture payments. His wife said she was paying it, and then she admitted she hadn't. So they fought, 
she threw a bottle at him and he pushed her. Apparently one time she teased him about flirting with another man, so he slapped her and made a scene at her work so she got fired. They referred to court for his assault on her. She had a 16-year-old friend named Lucy. Tim told someone that he'd like to smash Lucy up, but then he ended up having an affair with her. So <laughs> you can want to beat someone up and also want to fuck them. I don't, I don't know, depending on your mood. Beryl discovers she's pregnant and she didn't want it. Now, Tim thought, we've already got one. Why not just have another one? So he was for having the baby, even though they don't have anything. He was totally fine with it, and he was pissed because she didn't want it, and so she was actively trying to abort the baby. So apparently she got a syringe and was injecting herself with stuff, and she would take pills. Then Tuesday, November 8th, was the last day anyone saw Beryl. It's one of those things where when people were questioned later, Ethel said that she watched the baby that day, but Beryl didn't return when she said she was going to, but then... Reginald said that he saw her leave with the baby, so it's a little blurry. But for the most part, there was no reliable witness who saw her return after she left that morning. She disappears. Tim goes to his aunt's house, saying that Beryl and the baby went to, like, visit the family and that he's going to join them later. He sells his wife's ring, and the family says that he seemed tearful. He also had this story about how he was there for work with his boss and that his boss's car broke down so he had to stay with his aunt and uncle for a while and they realize he's like a big fat liar. Then he goes to the cops and says, I disposed of my wife. <laughs> and they're like, okay, do you want to read or like explain what is happening? Tim said he met a guy on a train who happened to give him abortion pills. He was just like, hey, you look like a guy who could use these. Here you go. Well, he takes them home, and Beryl takes them, and he goes home, and she's dead from taking these pills. So he was afraid of what else to do. He didn't know what to do, so he put her in a drain in the street. And then he said he gave his baby to John Reginald Christie. Well, the cops obviously rush out and look under the drain. First of all, it took three men to lift this drain. So his story is he put her in the drain by himself. So there's one red flag. They come back and they're like, she's not in the drain. Like, what the hell is happening? And it took three men to lift it. What's going on? So then he said, you know, I'm covering for Christy. Christy did it. He claims Christy knew about the abortion attempts, said he could help. Tim went away. When he came home, Beryl was dead. Christy said that she had gone septic from the pills that she had taken and he hadn't had a chance to do anything, that she just died. And he's like, they're going to blame you. So I will take care of the body. I'll put the body down the drain. I know a couple in East Acton that can watch the baby. You sell your shit and get out of town. I've got this. I'll cover this. You just go. There was a couple problems with this story is that apparently Christy was at the doctor's when Tim said they spoke. Christy was going to the doctor all the fucking time. Like every week he was going to the doctor because he was hardly able to get off his chair. He had intestinal problems and back problems to the point where he claimed he was unable to lie down for long and he could hardly bend at the waist. So he was always up and down and up and down and he was seeing the doctor. So apparently the doctor said, Christy was at my office at this point in time. Well, then when Christy said, Evans, that he knew Beryl had gone, he didn't know where the baby was, Tim had disappeared. Well, then Tim shows up out of nowhere and says, Beryl left and I'm having trouble finding a job. And Christy's like, well, I don't know what to fucking tell you. You should have been better with your money. Like, I've already given you advice. And then Tim leaves and he doesn't know anything that's happened to any anybody until the cops show up and are like, hey, this is the story that he's telling. Well, of course, Tim said he did go back to visit Christy after he had run off, but he came back to find out where Christy had put his baby. 
So he's claiming, I went back to see Christy to find out where the baby was, and he couldn't tell me, or, you know, it didn't pan out to anything. When the cops interview Ethel, Ethel says that they were on friendly terms with the Evanses, but they didn't really hang out a lot, but they were friendly. But, of course, Christy said that they weren't really that friendly because he didn't really like that sort of person. So he was like, we just kind of didn't really involve ourselves with each other. A bunch of the neighbors, including the Christies, they all had heard the fighting between Tim and Beryl. So it was well known that they fought, they knew about, the cops had been involved several times, that there were definitely domestic issues. So that is something that was known by everybody. An interesting side note is that they found newspaper clippings about Donald Hume in Tim's house. Hume was accused of murdering someone and scattering the chopped corpse in marshes. Could be nothing, could be something. Who knows? Then, while the cops were looking around, they found some bundles in the wash house. They open the bundles, and it is Beryl's body and the baby's body. So they found both of them dead in the wash house on this property. Again, reminder, no one knew that Christy had killed anyone at this point. So at this point, it just looks like this woman and child went missing, the husband said that the neighbor did it, and then bodies are found on their property. Beryl had marks on her neck, but Tim hadn't mentioned anything in his confession. He just said... Christy told him she was dead before he could do anything. She had died from pills that she had taken. But he never said she had marks on her neck. Another issue with saying that Christy did it, there were workers there working on the house, but no one heard any commotion. How did Christy move the corpse? We know that he had back problems. And so that was another question at the time is he wasn't wasn't very strong. How was he going to move that body by himself? Tim doesn't seem to be the type that's easily manipulated. I mean, he's the one who's usually manipulating people and telling stories. And his story, of course, makes it seem like he's, it's easy to be pushed around. So that's, um, that's a harder thing to prove, but it's something that has, was brought up. The other question is, why would he give his baby to someone that he doesn't know? Like, I can kind of understand letting the neighbor watch it for a little bit, but to let some, a couple you've never met take the baby? Again, it's not out of the realm of possibility, but it's, it's weird. And it's maybe something to think about. So at this point, Tim is at jail and he has said, Christy did it. He hid the bodies. I didn't do anything. Well, then the cops come back and they have Beryl and Geraldine's clothes. And they're like, we found their bodies. This is what they were wearing. They were strangled. Did you do it? And he says, yes. He goes on to say that he had a fight with Beryl. He hit her. She hit him, he strangled her with a rope, and took her down to an empty flat on November 8th. Two days go by, he comes home from work on the 10th, he he had quit his job. He says he strangled the baby with a tie and took the baby to the wash house along with where Beryl was. The thing is, at this point, apparently no one had told him how they were strangled. They just said they were strangled. But he seemed to know how they were strangled, and he knew where they were hid. No one had said, according to some of these things that I've read that no one had said anything. So he could tell them exactly, he knew exactly where they were. He could not have known these things unless he was the one who did it. Now a lot hinges, obviously, upon if that is actually 100% true. But if it is, that's pretty damning. He showed no anger or guilt when told the baby was dead. This was said by some of the police officers that were around. Some of the other surmise, they also surmise that he said he killed the baby later, but some think that maybe he 
probably killed her that same evening that he killed the wife because no one would no one heard her cry. I don't know that I'm on board with that because if you start strangling, can you cry? You know, like if you're strangling, you can't hear any um, sound can't come out. So I don't know that that means anything. In a way, I think it does make sense if he got pissed off and he strangles his wife and then the baby starts crying and he's already worked up that he would strangle the baby then. So I kind of see it makes a little more sense. Or I guess it could be he strangled his wife because he was pissed off and in that place and then he calms down and he waits a couple days like I you know let me just figure some shit out but then maybe he realizes the pressure starts building he quit his job he doesn't know what to do how is he going to have this baby how can he take care of a baby and so it may become like now he's putting her out of her misery because what's going to happen to her if he gets caught anyway so maybe let's just it's best for everyone if I just put her down I don't know I'm just that's a guess that maybe that could be something that he could have thought the baby had been strangled with a tie that was tied with a bow knot, and it was still on her when she was found. The coroner said that most likely a rope was used to strangle Beryl. There was swelling on her eye and lip, so there must have been a struggle about 20 minutes before her death. She did have a 16-week-old baby inside her that had not been interfered with, so apparently nothing that she was doing was affecting the baby. As we'll see later when I talk about the movie and the TV show, it seems that there was a lot of attention paid to Tim's trial in all these movies and shit. But there really wasn't, because if you think about it, in the vast scope of everything happening, you have a dude who might have killed his wife and daughter. And while that's horrible, in the grand scheme of things, everything that's happening, that's not really that too out of the ordinary. It wasn't this huge case. It didn't really attract much attention. He said that two of the statements he had made to the cops when he was protecting Reginald is he claims he initially lied to protect Christy and he was afraid that the cops would take him downstairs and beat him up. And he was worried about his baby. And then in trial, he couldn't really say why he was protecting Christy. When they're basically like, well, you're obviously a liar, right? You're, you lied about like all this stuff. Well, and he's like, well, no, no, no. I just lied about that stuff because Christy told me to. So <laughs> it's all a big fucking circus. You know, what he lied about, what he didn't lie about. Later during the trial, all of a sudden, Ethel and Reg say that they heard a bump on the 98th. When they were initially questioned, they didn't say anything about it. So then that's another thing that's weird. Like, did they just forget and then later reminded, remembered later? Or is that a very pointed thing where then they corroborated and said, okay, let's just say that we heard a bump so that way we can prove that Tim did it and not Reginald. Supposedly they heard a bump, which could have been him killing his wife and trying to bring her down the stairs. The judge doubted that Christy was the killer because Beryl didn't die from an abortion. He also said if Christy was guilty, he would have said he knew nothing about it. But like everything in this, there's contradictions in different places. There's a lot of back and forth and upside, downside, whatever. An interesting note is when they said that Tim was guilty, Reginald started to sob. People were like, what the hell? Later on, he said he felt bad sending a man to his death because he was against capital punishment. But that's also surmised is that maybe he was crying because he had two bodies on his property. So he was relieved that he got off scot-free. Another argument that Tim Evans had killed his wife and baby. Someone said, It is also noteworthy that Evans seemed calm and resigned to his fate in prison. Many killers adopt this attitude. But an innocent man who had lost both wife and daughter would be more likely to be angry at the injustice of the situation. So there's another another point in the many arguments. If he was really innocent, wouldn't he have been pissed? 
Well, he didn't have long to worry about it either way because he was hanged. So, as it does, life goes on. Christie continued to have his health problems and to, and to further go into these health problems. His body frequently ached. His stomach burned with enteritis, which apparently is inflammation of the small intestine. He had pain in his lower back. He couldn't sleep. He had memory problems. He visited the same doctor for 20 years, and none of the remedies really helped. He was prone to crying, sobbing, giddiness, amnesia, and flatulence, sometimes all at once. And as terrible as that sounds, it also sounds pretty funny. As long as I'm not the one that it's happening to. His head frequently pounded. He had fibrositis and insomnia. The doctor basically said he, had, he was having a fucking nervous breakdown. He had a nervous breakdown. The doctor thought it was brought on by extreme stress from the living situation where at this point they had some neighbors that were had come from Jamaica. And so there was some tension in there of that aforementioned racial tension. Yeah, the Christie's wound up being pretty uh, racist. And he went to the psychiatrist as recommended by his doctor. The psychiatrist said, you need to stay here for a week. But he was afraid to leave his wife alone because she was nervous about being alone in the apartment. And she was also on medication for her stress and things like that. It is said that his worst health was like in 1950 and 1952. That's another thing that I think doesn't help anything is it's like when he says he has loss of memory. How do we know? Was he is he setting this up? I mean, he already knows that he killed two people. He could just be setting up for when he gets caught and just planting seeds. I don't know how you can prove that someone is really in pain, but the doctor's just like, yeah, he was just in a lot of pain. And I, I again, I don't know how you can prove that. They when and especially when it says if this is true that none of the remedies remedies really helped, then does that mean this is all psychosomatic? I don't know. That's another thing that's a little was his health really that terrible or was he just kind of building things and or maybe he really did have these problems and who the hell knows. In 1952, Ethel's brother said that and and I'm quoting I'm quoting her brother. She appeared quite happy except for black concerns. Ethel's never complained to me about the conduct of her husband, but she was not the type of person who would complain in any case. So when he says the quote black concerns, he's talking about her neighbors that are African Caribbean. So I guess she complained about that that living arrangement, but apparently she never talked about Reginald treating her badly. But again, he did say she wouldn't complain. So I'm not sure when he says she's not the type to complain, but then he says that she complained to me. <laughs> eh, maybe he meant about things in general. Most things. There were just very specific things that she would comp complain about. Christy went to cafes to hunt for women, and he even invited one over when Ethel was home, claiming that he just wanted her to watch the fireworks with them or something. So he was, uh, he was saucy. He sometimes, uh, he pushed that line sometimes. Someone later said that he told her that he trained to be a doctor and his dad was a famous surgeon. As they interview people and talk to people, there were several people who said, oh, yeah, he told me that he, he knew medical stuff. He told me he was a doctor. He told me this. He told me that. So we see where, like, Tim, he was apparently also a chronic liar or exaggerator or exaggerator. -er. <laughs> Ethel wrote to her brother on October 10th and said that Christy had repaired some cracks that there had been that the landlord wouldn't take care of and that she wished they could live someplace else. So it was all just pretty normal stuff. She started another letter to her sister before she got the chance to finish a letter to her sister. Christy killed her. He strangled her with a stocking around her neck, put on that makeshift diaper for her, and when she was dead, he buried her under the loose floorboards. He did keep some pubic hair of hers, and apparently he had a method of half carrying, half dragging the body using a sheet. He updated that letter that she had started writing. He, like, crossed it out and made it five days later. 
and sent it to her sister. After he disposed of Ethel, he told people different stories of where she was. And this just blows my mind. Like, why don't you just pick one story and stick with it? That's the best thing to do. What the hell? What are you doing telling different people different things? I don't know if it's also going to be chalked up to that memory loss thing or if he just was testing things out. I don't know. But he told someone that she got a job in Sheffield. He told someone she was having a woman's operation. She was nursing her sick sister, or she had a job in Birmingham. The neighbors started to notice that he was sprinkling disinfectant all of the time, which wasn't necessarily that crazy of a thing, but it was noticed. Then he gets heavy into his murderings. He meets Kathleen Maloney, who was a sex worker. She went back to his place with him because she felt bad for him. He told her his wife had died, and he gave her some of his wife's clothes. A friend of theirs said that he paid her to pose naked for pictures with him and that also she was there and took pictures of him with Kathleen, but there was no sex. When those women saw him again, he refused to give them more money for anything. However, Kathleen at one point went back to his place. She was tipsy. I think he, um, he bought her some drinks and stuff, so she was fucked up. Took her to his house. She sat in this deck chair. There was a cord behind her shoulder hanging from the back of the chair. And then he, he turned on the coal gas, put a cord around her neck, and strangled her while he was taking her clothes off of her. He raped her and then finished strangling her and she died. He put her in the cupboard. No one really noticed that she was gone. Rita Nelson was next. He went to cafes to meet women. He said that he met her and another girl at a cafe and they were talking about needing a flat. So Rita came over. And he killed her in basically the same fashion. He tied her to Kathleen and put them in the cupboard. It turns out that she was actually six months pregnant. The third woman, Hectorina McLennan, the third woman in this series, this will be the fifth, well, I guess sixth victim when you count his wife. She stayed with him for a few nights along with another guy. So she and a male friend stayed in his flat with him for a while. Well, she left, came back to visit, and he killed her. Again, the same M.O. as the rest. He put her in the cupboard with the other two. And apparently this is a pretty small cupboard, so they were really jammed in there. And then he walls the cupboard up. Her boyfriend actually noticed her missing, so Christy helps him look. He actually lets him walk around the apartment. He goes outside with him and tries to find him. Now, I guess some sources say that she was a sex worker, but in John Christie of Rillington Place, he says there's not really any evidence that she was a sex worker. After this point... Christy gets pretty destitute. He forges Ethel's signature for the rest of her money, but he's not working. He sold furniture and jewelry. He runs out of government assistance, and he's still trying to lure women back to his place this whole time. Apparently, they were scared off. He had his dog put down because he was 14 years old. His cat was found running wild and then was put down. He did have one woman over several times and let her live, but she did say she told her boyfriend that she was there. So that could have prompted that. Although it seems like there were a couple different women that said that he hung out with them and he never killed them. So that's kind of an, another interesting thing to note that maybe he didn't feel his circumstances were right or maybe they didn't strike him the same way. I don't know. Well, he can't, doesn't have money for rent. So he leaves Rillington Place March 20th, 1953. Didn't tell his landlord. And he sublet it to a couple illegally. And they had no idea. They thought that they had... He was the landlord and he was subletting this apartment, but it was not legal. The landlord happens to show up like the next day and kicks the couple out. Well, then Beresford Brown moves in 
He wanted to hang his radio on the wall. He found out it was hollow, peels back the wallpaper, and he finds bodies. At this point, the cops come, and they find the three bodies in the wall. Then they eventually find the two bodies in the garden. At this point, they were so degraded, they couldn't tell much except by the teeth. And they found a box of pubic hair. This box of pubic hair, they said it contained four lots of pubic hair, which had been found under a piece of linoleum in the garden. He said that none could have belonged to any of the women found in the alcove, despite Christie later saying they were. He thought one might have belonged to Ethel, though not necessarily, because they were very common type of hair. Furthermore, the hair found had been cut, and there was no evidence of hair cut from her at the time of her death. Possibly it could have been cut off some months previously. Two sets of hair might have belonged to the skeletons in the garden, judging by the sample of hair found in the garden and by the description of one of the victims. But the final and fourth one is like no pubic hair I have received in this case at all, or any of the persons described to me. <laughs> it is unknown to whom this belonged. Dr. Keith Simpson later wrote, One piece of evidence suggests that he had at least one victim, perhaps four. Yet, if this were the case, where were the bodies? Christie's method of murder was to kill on his own home territory, so it's more likely that he snipped hair from the prostitutes he had business with than he committed further murders. So that's, um, that's another tricky thing, is they couldn't figure out whose pubic hair it was. And he says that he did cut pubic hair off of Ethel, so I don't fucking know. But again, he was Mr. Liar Face, so who knows? They also found a piece of rope 18 inches long with double knots at each end hidden in a toolbox. They found that deck chair, and it was not made of canvas, but it was made of rope and string and covered with cloth, which I mostly bring that up because they do depict that in the movies pretty well. When the newspapers got hold of it, they called it Murder Flat, Murder Unlimited, Police Hunting for Man with Inane Laugh. He was nicknamed Notting Hill Killer, Jack the Strangler, Moon Mad Killer, and Mad Strangler. The Moon Mad thing... I think they were trying to say, like, they wanted to catch him before the next full moon in case that's what made him kill. And another title was Skeleton Mystery. Some of the papers said that he mutilated the bodies, but he didn't. People stole bricks from the house. They would charge people to get their picture taken in front of the house. And then, understandably, no one really wanted to live in, quote, the house of horrors. At this point, Christie went to a working man's hotel. Using his real name, he checked in. He stayed for four days and just left with no notice. He wandered around, sleeping on the streets, still trying to lure women, but not being successful. He was not panicked by the news. So he said, after he was caught, he was like, I wasn't worried about it. I don't know. I was just walking around a haze. I don't know what I was doing. He winds up going near the river, hanging out there, just watching the water. A cop sees him, and now his face is everywhere. So he kind of thought he looked familiar. So he goes up to him and he's like, what are, you, are you looking for a job? What's going on? And then Christie said his name was John Waddington. The cop tells him to take his hat off. And then he's got a big old dome. Like, you need, you need to see pictures. This guy has his big old baldy head. And it's, 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 it's pretty big. So it's, you'd recognize him if you saw him. So the cop recognized him as soon as the hat was off. And he took him in. And then at that point, John Reginald Christie said that I am John Reginald Christie. At this point, he cried talking about the death of his wife. He said it was a mercy killing. Ethel was miserable. She was on lots of medication. He woke up to her shaking and convulsing and choking in bed. He tried to help her, but when he could see that she still was having issues and there was nothing he could do, he didn't think that the cops could come in enough time or the ambulance could come in enough time to help her. So he, quote, put her to sleep by strangling her with a stocking. Then he looked over at the nightstand and saw she had taken 23 
of these phenobarbitone pills that she had been described. There were 25 in the bottle, and she left two. He claimed she took all of these pills, and that's actually what had killed her. He just helped her along because he knew that he couldn't save her. The thing is, when her body was looked at, there was no traces of any phenobarbitone in her system. There were no drugs in her system. There's also the point that he had altered that letter. The sister got the letter, and she saw where it was, like, crossed out, (laughs) the date. So they're like, well, obviously... You were covering, well, and he covered it up, so that's always suspicious. The reason he said he covered it up is I did not want to be separated from her. That's why I put her there. She was still in the house. He killed her on December 14th, 1952. One of the writers did point out that he did not gas her to leave her unconscious before she was strangled, like he did with most of his other victims. So he tried to be merciful by at least making them unconscious before he killed them. But with her, he actually just strangled her. So she knew she was being killed. So that's another interesting note. I don't know if that means anything or not, but it's an interesting change in the pattern. He said the rest of the victims were self-defense. Each woman he had, that had been killed had come to him and forced themselves onto him in some capacity or another where he felt threatened. He had to kill them to defend himself. Of course, this did not account for any of the gas that they had been exposed to or the rape that it was obvious that were committed on them. He said of Kathleen that she propositioned him on the street outside his house. And when he said no, she pushed into his house. And then he had some kind of story that he accidentally strangled her while keeping her from falling. So he manages to even say, well, it was self-defense, but in a way that I was just trying to push her away from me. But somehow I pushed her in a way that she got strangled. And again, there's no mention of the gassing or the diaper that she was wearing when she was found. As for Hectorina, he said... I could have then followed her, caused her to fall. I could then have dragged her. And I, after we were intimate, I could have put her into the chair. So at that point, he's basically saying that he had memory lapses. So he's not admitting, I did follow her. I did drag her. I did this. He said, I could have done this. So I suppose it's possible that those things happened. But again, it's that... It sounded like, well, maybe it was still inadvertent or it was still something that he wasn't completely all aware of. He did not mention Beryl and baby Geraldine. When it comes to defense for the trial, of course, he's going with the insanity defense. And just like Tim, he managed to have three total confessions. So his second confession, he said he found Beryl trying to gas herself in in the apartment. He saved her. Then she said that she'd have sex with him if he would help her die. So he couldn't, he was having trouble having sex with her. So instead he's like, well, I won't have sex with her, but I'll go ahead and help her die because this is what she's asking me to do. So he held a gas tap to her face and then strangled her with a stocking. He told Tim his wife killed herself when Tim came home that night and that he said, well, you'll be a suspect. I'll take care of her. But he said, I don't know what happened to the baby. This story doesn't mention how the bruises got on her face. She had no traces of gas, and they even exhumed her body. They also noted she was probably strangled with a rope and not a stocking, and that Christy could not have been the house when Tim returned, and that the hairs in the tin didn't match hers. Plus, she didn't appear raped, and that was his M.O., is that he would gas them and rape them, but she didn't have any of those. He said, I felt at the time of the Evans affair... Normally, I could not have done it, but if I was ill mentally, I could possibly have killed her. But to, but it seems that this confession was absurd, 
And according to Jonathan Oates, if the jury believed it, it wouldn't be because of hard evidence, for there was none. So there isn't any hard evidence that he actually killed Beryl. He sells his story to the Sunday Pictorial to fund his defense. So he makes a deal with a newspaper and they say, if you write this story, if you give us your story, we'll pay for your defense. He does. Now, this is interesting because then they tried to introduce legislation that would prevent killers on trial from selling life stories, but it didn't get anywhere. And this is interesting to note because, as I've mentioned before, there was the Son of Sam law where killers couldn't make money off of their victims or off things related to their victims. And apparently it's not necessarily 100 percent completely concrete law, but it does exist and it has been applied in some cases. So it's interesting to see that that was brought up in this case. So during his story that he told to the paper, and I quote, he described a recurring dream that demanded he kill 10 women to fulfill his destiny. After victims four, five, and six, I now remember how I used to think that there are only six more, or only five or four more to make 10. Then I can rest. He said, after Ethel was gone, the way was clear for me to fulfill my destiny, and that for years, I had to kill just 12 women, and then my work would be finished. There was just some unknown urging me to do it. Now, in one statement, he says there were 10 that he had to kill. In the next one, he says there are 12. So he seemed to enjoy being compared to John George Hegg, the acid bath murderer. He killed six people and then dissolved their body in drums of acid. When it comes to the victims, the three victims in the cupboard, they were all sexually assaulted and exposed to large amounts of coal gas. And Ethel... There was no sperm found and no trace of barbiturates. She was clearly strangled. Beryl, the pathologist found, was not gassed. She most likely was killed with rope. As Tim had said, no evidence of sexual assault. He did admitting to raping Muriel and Ruth, which was interesting because they couldn't prove that because they were just skeletons. So it's interesting that he admitted it to the ones that they couldn't prove, but wouldn't admit it to the ones that they could prove. He was emphatic that he did not kill the baby. He said he didn't remember anything. But if there is proof, then he must have done it. So that's why he went back and was like, well, I could have done it this way. There's a certain point when he's just like, OK, I guess I did it. But maybe that just means I'm crazy because I don't know if if I'm insane, then I don't know that I did it. He was on trial just for killing his wife. At that point, they would only do one murder charge at a time. And the jury did not need to find motive for killing his wife, just intent. He was studied by psychiatrists, and they couldn't find evidence of delusions, hallucinations, or misinterpretations. He seemed highly abnormal, but not a victim of disease. The doctor didn't believe the memory loss was genuine. It was too inconsistent, variable, patchy, and selective. And I quote, It is striking how Christie remembers what he regards as being in his own favor and forgets, or can only remember transiently, what is not. The defense said that he's obviously insane because he lived with corpses and that he probably had a mental disease from the time that he was mustard gassed in the war. Christie did admit that if a cop had been in the room, he would not have killed his wife. So that's a, a big thing because if you know the McNaughton rule, it is if you did not know what you were doing at the time of the murder, then you can be considered legally insane and then you can get off. But... If you were able at the time to know that what you were doing was wrong and illegal, then you would not be insane and you would therefore be guilty. So that is a big thing that, for him to say. He was found guilty, but sane. At this point, they start looking into whether maybe Tim killed Beryl 
or and his daughter. So as as you know, he was already hanged, and they got to thinking, well, now that we know that Christie had bodies and that Christie had strangled people, and Beryl and his daughter and her daughter were killed, then maybe we should take a look at this Tim Evans thing again. What if we hanged an innocent man? At this point, Reginald has his fourth confession. This time, he said his attorney and psychiatrist convinced him that admitting to killing Beryl would help his insanity defense. And the, there was a official, an official report that said that Christie's admission to her murder was unreliable. Supposedly, <laughs> there was a sergeant that was talking to him while in prison, and Reginald Christie said that Rindlington Place was a backstreet abortion center. Ethel did all the abortions, and he did the anesthesia. She considered it a public service. And the reason he had the gas and the dex chair method figured out was to help with the anesthesia with the abortions. It was never meant to kill anyone. It was to help put them out long enough for them to do the procedure. Unfortunately, some of the girls accidentally died. Now, he never said anything about rape. He was saying that they died from the gas with the procedure. But evidence showed that they were raped. And he never acknowledged that they were strangled because they were also strangled. <laughs> Pathologists could not find evidence of abortion. There were no medical tools in his flat. He claimed the reason Ethel died is because Ethel did find him molesting a patient, threatened to report him, so he strangled her. The interesting side note is that same cop that he was telling this to had visited Christy in his home and had noticed a smell and was like, what the fuck is that? Well, Christy's like, oh, you know, of course he blamed his neighbors because they eat that crazy food and the big racist that he is. You know, was like, oh, you know, you don't know how they are. <laughs> so the cop bought it and was like, okay. Because why would he think that the dude had killed his wife and she's rotting under the floor? So when, then after they find the body under the floor, the cop was obviously like son of a bitch. A colleague later said that Christy told him he could do abortions. But there hasn't really been anything, anything solid that says that Christy really did abortions. He was hanged at 54 years old, and he was the last serial killer to be executed in England because shortly after, they got rid of the death penalty. There was a wax figure in Madame Tussauds even before he was dead. They were gearing up, and they had him alongside the aforementioned John George Haig. Their first inquiry into Tim's innocence, they figured Tim did it. And they also pointed out, as I had mentioned, that he had had those articles about the guy Hume that had killed someone and scattered scattered their bodies and they felt that it was close to how Hume did it so it was obviously him. Now I think that only took like a week to do so there was some backlash on that. Michael Eddowes wrote a book in 1955 as a case for Tim's innocence. Someone else had an argument that Tim and Reginald Christie worked together and that Tim killed Beryl and Reginald killed Geraldine, but there is little evidence to support that. 1965, Ludovic Kennedy wrote a book, and it was to, he had read Eddowes' book, and he agreed that Tim was innocent, so he was setting about to try to really drive home why Tim was innocent. Though the problem is it had misleading information and incorrect facts. Much of what he said was inaccurate about Reginald's life, and I quote, in fact, the book is a catalog of factual errors and assumptions, and that's taken from Jonathan Oates' book. He said that there was not a vaginal swab taken from Beryl, which is a big, huge thing, but apparently that was not the case. So that was one of the many factual errors that he points out. 
Well, in light of this big popular book, there was a second inquiry done by a dude named Braben. Christie at some point had said that Tim had asked him to kill both of them, but this didn't fit any previous confession by either of them. Apparently, he had asked a hos- he had said it to a hospital officer, but then he said, "Why don't you uh, why don't you report that and make some money off of it?" So most likely, he was just wanting attention, and there really wasn't much weight to that. The inquiry found, quote, "It more probable than not that Tim did kill his wife, but Braben thought Christie killed the baby." Now Tim had been on trial for killing the baby, but since that inquiry found that he did not kill the baby, he wound up being pardoned posthumously. So he'd already been dead for a while. But, you know, still, it's nice to clear someone's name. Part of the reason that the death penalty was abolished later is because of this, this inquiry and this, what happened to Tim is that they wound up finding Tim didn't kill his baby and that's what he was hanged for. Now, if he would have been hanged for killing his wife, the inquiry would, it, then everything would have stood up and stayed in place and he would have stayed where he was. Rillington Place, people started harassing the renters to the point where the street was renamed to Rustin Close. 1970, the entire street was demolished. In 1971, a movie comes out called 10 Rillington Place. It was based on Kennedy's idea that of Tim's innocence. Lord Richard Attenborough, who was Christie in the film, he said it was a reaction to a private member's bill to reintroduce capital punishment. Quote, this is how the film must be seen rather than taken as a factual account of the murders. So that's a big deal, is the movie was more made more for propaganda than to actually tell you truth about what happened. There was Marshall Cavendish's murder case book series, which followed Kennedy's idea. And that's an interesting point because I just ordered that murder case book and it is on its way to me right now and I did not know about it because of this book I had done it before I read this book so that's kind of another interesting little thing that happened while I was doing this is so I will have that with me so maybe I'll give you a little update on what that's like I have another edition of the Cavendish murder book series and it's about killers that happened during blackouts which I will do a series on that as well 30 years later they were able to access previously inaccessible files so Eddowes writes another book and he attacked Kennedy, <laughs> which is funny because Kennedy had written a book in response to Eddowes and just expanding. Well, he attacked Kennedy so hard that Kennedy sued him. <laughs> and then any books moving forward seem to just perpetuate those errors that have been around that no one has bothered to try to clear up or what have you. Someone concluded that Christie murdered Beryl and Geraldine in 2004, and the Evans's family got payments but there was no new inquiry to prove anything either way. That is the bulk of it. And now we're going to go into comparing the movie and the TV show. The aforementioned Ten Rillington Place movie was a 1971 British film by director Richard Flesher. You can watch it on Amazon Prime. I had watched it before around Halloween when I was doing suggesting movies based on serial killers. So I'd seen it before and I thought, well, this is a perfect time to rewatch it and make it part of the show. Lord Richard Attenborough is John Reginald Christie, and I did not notice it because he's so fucking young in this movie, but he was John fucking Hammond in Jurassic Park. And as soon as I saw, looked him up on IMDb, because I'm like, I know that name. And it was a picture of him, basically how he looked in Jurassic Park, and I was like, holy shit, it's John fucking Hammond. So that was exciting for me. John Hurt was Tim Evans, and that's another exciting part because, as you know, he was Kane and Alien, the guy with the chest, the chest burster. 
of course, John Hurt's been in a lot of stuff. So both of them are good actors, and so they were, it was, they made the movie solid. And it was exciting to note that they were in it. It was adapted from the book 10 Rellington Place by Ludovic Kennedy, who was a technical advisor to the movie. It makes a note at the beginning that the dialogue was based on official documents as closely as possible. So there again, you have, this is a true story. So they're really driving home. This really happened. We're basing this on accurate official documents. It opens in 1944. They do have Christy as being a soft-voiced man that was kind of mild-mannered. And it begins with a woman with bronchitis visiting him. It's Muriel. He said he had something to help her. He then, of course, unclips the hose to gas her to death. And they jump right on in. So they don't start with childhood or anything like that. They just jump into, you know, that murder. Well, then they go to 1949 and show the Evans is moving in. Beryl has a friend named Alice that visits. Beryl finds that she's pregnant. Christy offers to abort it. They're really good at showing how Tim might have been manipulated by Christy. It's pretty expert and masterful when you see how he does it. And you could see why watching it, even if you are kind of strong personality, you could kind of see why based on the circumstances, maybe he could have manipulated him. So they're, it's very well crafted in trying to show Tim's innocence. He mentions the East Actum couple and that he'll put her in the drain. Tim helps him take her downstairs and put in the empty room. Then Christy comes downstairs and tells his wife, Tim left and I found the baby strangled upstairs. So he tells his wife, I'm going to dispose of the baby because we don't need this. None of us need this. And so that's an interesting thing is that was never that wasn't really brought up in anything else that she knew that the baby was killed. We don't know how much she actually knew, apparently. Tim goes to the cops, disposed of his wife. There's nothing in the drain. He changes the story, said he was protecting Christy. This is another thing where I had watched the movie, and then as I read the books, where in the movie, the cops say, they're looking at the wash house, and they're like, what's that bundle? And she's like, I don't know. And he's like, well, touch it and see if you recognize it. I don't know why they make her touch it. And so that she touches it, and she's like, I don't know what it is. I don't recognize it. So in the books... Apparently, she really that really did happen. Is the cops do have her touch it, and they she doesn't know what it is. So that's that's an interesting detail that they threw in that very specific thing. During Tim's trial, Ethel starts to sleep on the couch in the movie. She says she's going to Sheffield to see her brother, and she suspects him. Then the next thing they show him with a rope. Then they show him digging up the floor, and there's a body laying there. So that's another thing the movie does is they they're not really graphic with things. They like start to imply what's going to happen, and then they cut to there's a body or, you know, you can tell that he had killed him at that point. So there's nothing really very graphic about it. He meets a woman in a cafe. She has a migraine. He brings her home. And then, you know, they imply again that he had gassed her and killed her because the next scene is she's sitting in the chair and he has the gas and then they show him sealing up the wall. But I will note this, that according to the books... The woman with the migraine did not go home with him. I think this is a case where it's not a huge deal because it does show that he, that's something, a method that he tried. And whether that actually worked with a specific victim, I guess that's not a huge deal because it is something that he tried. They show the new renters find a hollow wall with three bodies. Chrissy's found while loitering. He confesses all those confessions and then he's hanged. And they have like an afternote. Twelve years later, Tim was pardoned for blah, blah, blah. And then I have the side note, there are no pets shown in the movie. So they do, I believe they do show a dog like trying to dig in the garden, but there's not really anything that shows that he, they had a dog or a cat. 
which is, that's not a big deal, just a, a note of interest. Now, according to <laughs> John Christie of Burlington Place by Jonathan Oates, there were many errors, and this is not all of the errors that <laughs> were found, but this is uh, the bulk of the errors that he mentions. In the movie, they show that Christie was a cop when Muriel was killed, but he was not in real life. Alice was not real. She was based on the friends Joan and Lucy. Builders in the movie showed up on November 8th. He takes a sick day, has his wife take documents to his work, and that's when he kills. But that didn't actually happen that way. It has Ethel aware of the murders, and we don't know that she was. Christie's in-laws were misnamed. There is no evidence of gas, and that's how Beryl was killed in the film. They didn't mention at the end when they said that he was pardoned because he didn't really kill the baby. But they don't mention that he probably did kill his wife. So it just all that reiterates that they were definitely trying to prove Tim's innocence. So they left some things out and they changed some things around a little bit. The Rillington Place show was a 2016 BBC One three-parter series. I watched it on Shudder or AMC+. I was very excited when I realized that Tim Roth is Reginald Christie. And the very first thing I knew Tim Roth from was Rosencrantz and Guildenstern were dead. And then, of course, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, in addition to a thousand other things. I love him. He's amazing and wonderful. The interiors of 10 Rillington Place were recreated at BBC Scotland's Dumbarton Studios near Glasgow, while the exteriors of the street were shot on a set created in the parking lot at the same studio. Because, again, at this point, that whole place had been torn down. So the first episode, it focuses from on Ethel and, like, kind of her viewpoint and the things happening to her from her vantage. It opens with Tim Evans being hanged and then it cuts to 12 years earlier and it shows that he didn't write for her for nine years. She visits him, visits him in prison. They reconcile. They do have in 1940 that he has a dog, which is accurate. His wife's actually kind of feisty in this one. So in 10 Rillington Place, the movie, they have her just being kind of quiet and like in the background. But in this one, she's actually like, if you touch that, if you touch that girl, you're going to get it. So it's kind of interesting to see her being a little feisty. It does show that the wife had been assaulted by the neighbors. In the book, they said their neighbors had assaulted the wife at some point. So that's apparently accurate. 1944, they show him meet Muriel. He tries to strangle Ethel, so she goes to her brother, and then Muriel winds up missing. I did not see in anything that I read that he ever tried to strangle Ethel and that she ran to her brother. And that's part of the reason I mentioned earlier that the brother said she never really complained about her husband. So I think it's interesting if she would have gone to him that he would have said, well, yeah, he, there was that one time he tried to strangle him, you know, unless he's just trying to stay the fuck out of it, which I don't see why he would do that. But so I'm assuming they threw that in there to really try to drive home the kind of person that Christy was. In 1948, they get new upstairs neighbors, Tim Barrel and Geraldine. Episode two, it's interesting because then they switch the focus from Ethel to Tim. So we see 1949, Beryl has a friend over called Lucy. Then they're fighting. Tim says he's going to run away to Europe. They show a bunch of his lies and all their fighting. The builders show up and Christy makes a comment that... When they're talking about how he could give Beryl an abortion, Tim says, well, how do you do it? And Christy says, well, we can't tell every Tom, Dick, and Harry how to do an abortion. That's very specific because that was something that was apparently said that was in the official documents. And that was in the movie and the book and the TV show. So that's, I just like when they have little details like that where they have actual quotes that are put in there. They have Tim say the same stories with Christy involved. And the only difference with Tim at the cops 
is that in the TV show, he asks about his baby. So he says, will you please check on my baby? She's here, blah, blah, blah. Whereas I don't remember that in the movie being a thing. The last episode, it focuses on John Reginald Christie himself. So it opens with the new tenant finding bodies in the wall. But then it jumps back to three years earlier. Tim is 25 years old. He's at the trial. Then Ethel confronts Reginald. She's like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what you did. And this is a bunch of shit. Blah, blah, blah. So then he strangles her in bed while she's sleeping. And I did not see anywhere where it was proved definitively or where she said, I confronted him. I, we don't know. I don't know. I've not seen anything yet where she's confronted him or it says how she handled things or what she knew either way. We just know that she was killed. So it's not, it's quite possible that she did confront him and that's why she died. It was either she confronted him so he realized she needed out of the way or maybe he just realized she needed out of the way. Or it could be a combination of everything. In the show, he wanted to sell his furniture for 15 pounds, but he got 12 pounds. And that is actually true. I saw that in the Jonathan Christie of Rillington Place book. He goes to the doctor talking about his lapses. He brings a woman home and gasses her. He approaches a woman in a cafe asking if she has a migraine, but she didn't go. He does have a dog. The dog, he ties it to a bench and leaves it, which, as we know, that didn't really happen. He had the dog put down. But I think that I guess it shows that I'm not sure what they were doing by that, by showing that it was he was really a dick just to leave his dog tied to a bench or they didn't they didn't want to imply a dog got put down. I'm not sure why they didn't just have him show the dog got put down unless that looked like he was being merciful and they didn't want to show him being merciful. They wanted to show him being a dick and leaving it to fend for itself. I don't know. And they do show the cop come over. He blames the neighbors for the smell in his house. In 1953, the murders are discovered, four types of pubic hair. He said he doesn't think he killed the baby and said he only killed women. So that's the gist of all of all of three episodes of Rillington Place. It was really good. Like I said, I love Tim Roth, but I think I think they did a, a good job of it. It's they're really good at pulling on your heartstrings and making it look like Christy really did use Tim and it's despicable and disgusting. And it's very obvious that's what both of, both of the things meant to do, is they were both meant to show Christy is a big asshole and that Tim was innocent. Maybe he was abusive and kind of a, li and a liar and stuff, but it was really Christy that did everything. The differences between the movie and the TV show is Beryl's friend was Alice in the movie, but Lucy in the TV show. And as I said earlier, she really did have a friend named Lucy. The baby, Reginald told Ethel he found the baby dead. But that wasn't in the show. There were no pets in the movie, but they do have a dog in the show. Ethel, during Tim's trial, the wife started to sleep on the couch. She says she's going to Sheffield. They show him with a rope, then digging up the floor and a body in the movie. But then in the show, he tries to strangle Ethel. So she goes to her brothers, comes home. They start going through a trial. She confronts him and he strangles her in a sleep. So you see some different things happening with Ethel and that, although they both wind up with her in the floor, which is what really happened. In the show, they show Tim asking the cops about the baby, but that wasn't really brought up in the movie. I did notice that in both the movie and the show that the dialogue with Christy at the trial is dead on from what I saw in the documents in the books. So that's, again, I like it when they have the exact same transcript that seems to be what really happened. So that was nice. They were good with some of the details that they worked in, 
like they mention in both movies, they show Tim with a teddy bear that he had bought for Geraldine after he had run off from his wife being killed and such. But in the book, it says the teddy bear was never really found in his position, that he said that he had bought a teddy bear, but he's never really seen with a teddy bear. But I do like that in the movies they show the teddy bear. So they they show that they've researched and they know some things. But that makes it frustrating that if they know that he said there was a teddy bear, but there never was a teddy bear actually seen, but they show a teddy bear, that that's another case where they took, because it looked good for him to have a teddy bear, if you want to say that he's innocent. So they kind of twisted it. I do see where they probably took things and just twisted them a little bit to try to get them to everybody to see that Tim was actually innocent. Both of the actors who played Reginald Christie were really good. And like I mentioned before, it was interesting to see the different ways Ethel was portrayed, where in the movie she was kind of quieter and went along with things and kind of more in the background. But then in the show, they really showed her and they showed her having more of a spirit. And I don't know which one is closer to the truth, but it's interesting to see the different depictions. And I don't know. I'm guessing we have to do more digging and see if maybe there's any place that Ethel said anything. Although I have a feeling if there was, both of those books would have mentioned it because they seem to really want to cover everything. I would recommend both. I would say watch both things, read all the books, because it's it's always interesting to see all of the information that's out there. And they do like they do pull on your heartstrings and they're really in place. And it is interesting to see and to see things from that point of view. And even if you look at it as just this is just something entertaining to watch, then that's fine. You don't have to look at it as, oh, well, they fucked this up because they didn't mention this or they got this wrong. You can just say this is a movie that I'm watching. Let's enjoy this acting. Let's enjoy what they're trying to do here. The last thing, I'll just quickly touch upon the whether Christy or Evans killed Geraldine and Beryl. It is difficult because they're both chronic liars, but when they talk about how could there have been two stranglers living in the same building, my thought is if you have a low-income area, it's a high-stretch situation, it's wartime or post-wartime when they're still suffering from things, it is not hard to believe someone could snap in those circumstances. And crime was on the on the rise, so I don't think it's as difficult to believe as it may at first seem. Plus, strangulation is way more common. I would understand if they said there were two men in the same building or two people in the same building that drilled people's heads to make them zombies and they collected their skulls independently of each other, that they had no idea each other were doing it, or there's two different people that happened to both make nipple belts, and they didn't know about each other, but they lived in the same building. So those are very specific, different things, and I think that would be hard to believe, that you would have two people in the same building doing something that out of the ordinary. But to say, even like two people shot someone and they happened to live in the same building, if you hear that, you're like, okay, well, is that really that hard to believe that two people independent of each other might shoot someone? To drive it even further... I think they say it best in Death in the Air, and I quote, The murders at 10 Rillington Place will always be enigmatic. A macabre mystery that belongs in Edgar Allan Poe tale, complete with secluded bodies beneath an eerie fog. There will never be definitive answers. Could there have been two stranglers living in the same building, people ask? Yes, particularly in post-war Notting Hill, where domestic violence was prevalent and poverty was endemic. Two serial killers living in the same home may have been far-fetched, but Tim Evans wasn't a serial killer. He was an abusive husband, very capable of snapping. There's no conclusion to this case, no real closure. 
both men were habitual liars. Both men offered multiple unreliable confessions. Both men were violent. And both men had strong motives, though their impulses were quite different. There's no reliable physical evidence. No DNA test conducted to the pubic hairs found inside the tobacco tin. Nothing that police could dust for fingerprints. Strangulation was a very common weapon, cheap and effective. The abundance of circumstantial evidence fueled enormous speculation. The list of coincidences in the murders seems hard to ignore. Farrell and Geraldine were found in the wash house, and two of Reg's victims were also briefly stored there. Yet Reg never kept the women there for very long. He was scared of being caught. Farrell and Geraldine were there for weeks. Reg was never that sloppy. He prided himself on having a plan. There is no real proof that one man was solely responsible. There were so many conflicting stories and details. There will likely never be a satisfying conclusion. What may be most disturbing about this case, the saga of 10 Rellington Place, is what remains unknown. To whom did those four sets of pubic hairs really belong? Pathologists concluded that one set likely belonged to Ethel Christie, but that none could have come from any of the three women in the alcove, as Reg had claimed. It's unclear if they could have come from two women in the garden. Pathologists excluded Beryl Evans as a contributor. Reg was a collector, a serial killer who indulged in keeping mementos of his murders. There's always another space on the shelf for collectors. And there was another mystery, discovered in Reg's garden by police. Four teeth that couldn't be definitively linked to either women buried in the backyard. Were there more victims of John Reginald Christie, tucked away somewhere, never to be found? It would not surprise me to find that there is someone else, said Reg, in one of his final interviews before his execution. It would not surprise me. So I think a, there's definitely a case that could be made that Tim killed his wife and child and Chrissy killed all the other women. And as for the teeth found that they couldn't figure out in the pubic hair, they can't figure out who it belonged to, it does pop into my head. I didn't mention it, but at one point he accidentally, he was digging and he accidentally took off, I think it was Muriel's skull in his garden. So he picked it up. And he walked to a house that had been bombed, so it was like the remains of a house, and he just chucked it in the house. It was found later, but no one knew at that point whose it was. So it is possible that I guess he could have killed a woman and then maybe put her in another place that they never found. I mean, you never know. Or maybe he just really liked the pubic hair of some of the sex workers he was with and took their pubic hair. Or, you know, maybe he did it to throw them off. Who the fuck knows? Is another thing that's important to remember is anytime you're researching or if you're just reading things just to do it for fun, that you need to try to keep in mind what the goal is of the person writing the book or of making the movie or the TV show. So as we said earlier, 10 Rillington Place was written from the perspective that Tim was innocent. So keeping that in mind, you have to remind yourself, okay, so everything in this might not be presented. They may just present the things that support their case. And even in John Christie of Rillington book by John Nathan Oates. He said, this is a biography, not an examination of the police investigation, nor of the judicial inquiries, though both will be outlined. So I admit that since he was so thorough, I tend to lean heavily on his because he seems like he looked at it from different perspectives. But even so, I like to try to keep an open mind and try to still consider both perspectives in case there's, because there could be good points on both sides. And as thorough as Jonathan Oates may have tried to be to show both sides, maybe there were some things that he missed. Who knows? And then Kennedy, it was later said about his book that he, that he just used evidence to support his argument. Kennedy was not aiming to write an impartial history of the murders. 
Rather, as he admitted during the Braben proceedings, he was writing the case against Christie and looked for evidence which would incriminate him. So we see that the book 10 Rillington Place was meant to be an indictment against Christie and saying that Tim was innocent. And then, of course, the movie 10 Rillington Place was based on the book. And then you see how Rillington Place goes from that same point of view. So just a reminder, we all need to be careful what we're reading and seeing what point of view it's from and just keeping it in mind and trying not to buy things 100%, but just kind of keep it open and flexible and put things together and try to figure out what makes the most sense. Some general notes on Christie, and then we'll be done with this long episode. He chose his victims from a transient population that were most likely not to be noticed. It was close to where he lived, probably because it was easier to get them back to his house where he liked to do the killing and burying. And there was nothing personal to his killings. He didn't have any vendetta against the people. He just had this urge to kill and rape. And he needed the victim to be unconscious. So this is so he just chose people that was easier to fold into that plan. All of the victims had relatives or friends in West London. So he's lucky no one came looking other than that one, I think it was Hectorina, that her boyfriend came looking for her, but he was easy to throw off the path. Later on, Christie said that he, if he would not have been caught, he would have gone on killing. And he even had pinpointed the next victim. He had seen her in a car one day and he had in his mind that he would like to find her and kill her. One of the remaining questions is about the gassing. Is The question was, how was he not overcome too? That if he just had open air in the room, how did he not pass out? It's speculated that maybe he did pass out. So maybe he passed out, but then she was still passed out by the time he woke up. So he was still able to do his thing. In the movie 10 Rillington Place, they show that he made this little like cardboard mask to put over their face. So I haven't seen anything where they found a mask like that, but that would explain it. So I'm assuming they threw that in there to kind of explain that away. Some comparisons to other serial killers. I know we've made a few throughout. He was involved with a trade union and he was he was left winged. Nilsson was also a trade unionist and Harold Shipman was also a left winger. Nilsson also lived in a shared house and buried people in his garden. And then he hid his corpses like Haig and Nilsson and the West did. And... I cover the West in an episode. I will be covering Milson soon, but there are a few comparisons right there for you. I will end with a summation of Christie, as stated by Jonathan Oates in his book. I have known many bad men, but no one wholly bad. Evans and Christie were alike, were inadequate, insignificant little men, misfits in society, liars and boasters. Unlike Evans, Christie, in addition, was a self-righteous prude, a moralizer, and a killer of women, perhaps more than we yet know. He was gentle in voice and manner, and probably essentially gentle and kind in his nature. He hated cruelty in any form. There was nothing whatever of the sadist in his makeup. He went to extraordinary trouble to ensure that the killings of his victims should be painless. On at least one occasion, he interrupted his routine when his intended victim became frightened and allowed her to leave. He was completely inadequate sexually, and I doubt whether he was ever capable of sexual relationship with women, living, dying, or dead. I believe his motive for killing women was more anti-sexual than sexual, and I remain unconvinced by the evidence put forward suggesting necrophilia. He feared women and their criticism and hated their sexuality. He cared little for men either, though he courted their esteem and readily excused himself on grounds of imaginary illness for falling short of the conceited image he held of himself. Above all, he was a self-deceiver. He was an unpleasant bore, but not a monster. A man I found impossible to like and very difficult to love, a man sick in mind, a man we hanged. In the Christie Evans case, we should have not one, but two men on our conscience. 
However, we must remember that ultimately Christie was not a victim of anything except his depraved desires. He chose his own fate and did not permit his victims a similar choice. And that is John Halliday, Reginald, Mad Moon Strangler, Killer, Jack the Strangler, Christie. Again, I recommend reading Death in the Air by Kate Winkler Dawson and John Christie of Rillington Place by Jonathan Oates, as well as watching the movie 10 Rillington Place and the show Rillington Place. I appreciate you hanging with me through this whole thing. I know it's a lot. It was a lot to wade through. <laughs> lots and lots of information, and it's very confusing because both of them were liars, and they had so many different confessions. It was really difficult to keep everything straight. I'm going to go take a nap, and maybe I'm going to finish my Bloody Mary that I started here, and I'm going to get this strangling out of my brain for a while. Coming up, I will have another Strangler series where I discuss four or five other Stranglers. And we've got a bunch of other things planned. We'll talk about local serial killers. Igor will do another episode on more local murderers. And it's going to be all kinds of fun. Make sure you stay tuned. And as always, thank you for entering the lab. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. <laughs> <laughs>